Well, we have uh, two Bible readings this morning, firstly from Exodus 32, and then turning over to Romans 9. Uh, Exodus 32 will be the first 14 verses, and then verses 30 to 35, uh, and then the first five verses of Romans 9. Uh, I'm struggling a little bit with my voice this morning, so I've asked Robert Drennan to to come and, and read those passages for us. Thank you, Robert. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Uh, Moving on down then to verse 30 in the same chapter. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, 
Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And then the reading from the New Testament is from Romans, the Epistle to the Romans, and chapter 9, page 1138 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 9, it'll be helpful to have the first five verses open in front of you. Just to give you a bit of a heads up where we're going, uh, the introduction will be a little bit longer than usual. I, I wanted to serve as an introduction, uh, not simply to what we're looking at today, but, but to Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11. They're really a unit. Uh, they go together, uh, and hopefully a more broader introduction will be helpful for you uh, as you, you come across those chapters in your Bible reading. So, uh, so a, a, a longer introduction than usual, then we'll have two points, and the first one will be longer. Uh, so uh, that's just a heads up with where we're going. Have you ever gone immediately from the heights of joy to the depths of anguish? Perhaps everything that you had been dreaming about and working towards seemed to be coming together and then it was snatched away. Well, that is a sort of emotional swing that we have between Romans 8 and Romans 9. It is really remarkable. If you asked a group of people, a group of Christians, what their favourite chapter in the Bible was, Romans 8 would surely be the most popular 
It ends with the confidence in the last two verses that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says Paul, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have hit the heights, not just the heights of this letter, but some of the highest, one of the highest peaks of the whole Bible. And at this point, if we're familiar with Paul's other letters, we're probably thinking, well, our hearts have been warmed. We've been taken to the heights. Now he's going to tell us how to live in light of all that. What motivation we now have to go out and live for Jesus in the world. That is the normal pattern of Paul's letters. And the the shape of these New Testament letters is very significant. Uh, Paul starts with what God has done for us. uh, And only then does he tell us how we're to live in response uh, you may be familiar with Sinclair Ferguson, his preaching, his, his books. Uh, he was once asked to preach at a conference to give four talks. And after he'd given two of those talks, he was hauled before the organising committee. Uh, they were not happy. Uh, what was their complaint? When those two talks so far, he hadn't given one point of application. He hadn't said anything about what they were to do. He hadn't told people to go out and do anything. He just focused on the privileges that they had as Christians. And he says he was sitting in that meeting thinking the people on this committee don't understand how the gospel works. They don't understand that our whole motivation for Christian living comes in understanding our privileges. I wonder, by, by the same logic, would the apostle, would, would the committee have been dragging the apostle Paul before them if they'd read the first three chapters of Ephesians and noticed there were no commands? And it's only when he gets to the second half of the letter and he says, Therefore, now, in light of all this, I urge you to live like this. By the same logic, the, the committee would have been outraged to read the book of Romans and find that in a 16-chapter letter there is barely a command till we get to chapter 12. So that's all to say that after Romans chapter 8, we're now waiting for the application. But Paul doesn't go there, at least not yet. He will get there in chapter 12. If you're looking for the therefore, it's the first verse of chapter 12. But first we have three chapters where he deals with the fact that the Jews have rejected the gospel. And he goes from the overflowing joy of chapter 8 to the great sorrow and unceasing anguish of the first sentence of chapter 9. Now it's not as if Paul's circumstances have changed between Chapters 8 and 9, it's not that he finishes chapter 8, gets a knock on the door and someone comes with some bad news uh, and he's despondent as he sits back down. But as Paul thinks of the fact that his own people are missing out on all these privileges that he's just listed in chapter 8, he moves from great joy 
to overwhelming sorrow. And it's probably not a surprise that these three chapters are overlooked by many. Because who wants to dwell on unceasing anguish? We perhaps also struggle with these chapters a bit because Paul's concern for the Jews is partly uh, because he's a Jew himself and, and we're not. Uh, maybe there's someone from Ukraine in your street or in your school. I- imagine one day you come across them and they're sitting sobbing. You ask them what, what is wrong and they say, well, my, my country is being destroyed. My, my, my family back home, they've just ha- had their house destroyed. And you sympathise, perhaps you even shed a tear with them. You weep with those who weep. But no matter how compassionate you are, no matter how much it affects you, it's not going to affect you as deeply as it will affect them. And maybe we could feel a bit like that with these chapters. We're not Jews. And so it all seems a bit distant, a bit remote. And so part of my task this morning is to show you why these three chapters as a whole uh, and these five verses in particular are more relevant to us than we might initially think. And actually there is a a test as it were at, at the end of these three chapters to see if we've understood them rightly. For some these chapters are to be Avoided altogether, or to be endlessly debated, or when it comes to the rest of chapter 9, to, to, to use to beat people over the heads with, or when it comes to predestination. But, it, but if any of those are, are where we end up with these chapters, we've gone off course. So here's what the test looks like. The test for whether we understand these chapters rightly is that they'll result in overflowing praise. That's how chapter 11 ends. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So that's an introduction, not simply to what we're looking at this morning, but to these three chapters as a unit, uh, which will be hopefully helpful to you uh, as you come to these chapters in your own Bible reading. Uh, But today we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 9 under two headings. The first one, which we'll spend more time on, sincere sorrow. So firstly, sincere sorrow. Have you ever been about to say something but felt that people might not believe you? Well, that seems to be Paul's concern in verse 1. Do you notice that before he says what he's about to say, he tells his readers in three different ways that he's not trying to deceive them. That he is genuine in what he's saying. First he says I'm speaking the truth in Christ, then he says I'm not lying, and finally he says my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's speaking the truth in Christ. 
As he speaks, he, he does so as someone who is uh, conscious of his union with Christ. And as someone who has been joined to Jesus Christ, to lie would be a contradiction. And he says that his conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. Boys and girls, do you know what your conscience is? Well, it's part of you that you can't see. You can get a toddler to point to their nose or their eyes or their knees. You can say, where's, where's your nose? Where's your eyes? Where, where's your knees? But, but you can't get them to point to their conscience. But that doesn't mean we don't have one. Our conscience is just that part of us that tells us whether something that we're doing is wrong. And do you know, boys and girls and bigger people as well, it is a, a terrible thing to ignore our conscience and do something bad anyway. Why? Because it makes it easier to do that same bad thing again or to do worse things. It's bad to ignore our consciences, but our consciences can also get things wrong. Sometimes people's consciences tell them it's okay to do something that, that they shouldn't be doing. Maybe their, their mum or dad have, have never told them that something is wrong and they do it, but they still shouldn't do it. Or on the other hand, sometimes people's consciences tell them that, it, that it's not okay to do something when it's actually fine, uh, even good. Maybe because they, they've grown up being told that something isn't okay when it is. And so we need to know the Bible uh, so that our consciences learn what is right and wrong. Sometimes our consciences need to be taught. And that's why Paul says that his conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. It's not just his conscience, but his conscience shaped by the Holy Spirit through God's word. But the question remains, why does Paul feel the need to stress three times that he's telling the truth? Clearly there are people thinking that, if not saying that, uh, saying that he doesn't actually care about the Jews. Why would anyone think that? Well, we can't say for sure, but it's not hard to think of some potential reasons. For a start, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Someone might say, so, so you don't care about us Jews then? As well as that, in verse 3, he's going to imply that the Jews are accursed. In other words, he's going to say that they're going to hell. And maybe you've even had someone say to you, Look, according to your religion, I'm going to hell. Uh, so why would I believe that you actually care about me? Paul is also, in verse 3, going to describe the Jews as his kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, they're still his physical family, but he has a new spiritual family. Maybe you've experienced what it is to be part of a tight-knit family for years. Then you become a Christian, but the rest of your family don't. We have people like that in Stranraer. They're converted and they start prioritizing church, prioritizing it over even doing things with their families that they would have done. 
Maybe they even talk now about their church family. And it's not hard to imagine the response. Oh, oh, are they your family now? Are, Are we not your family anymore? So those are some reasons that people could conclude that Paul doesn't really care about the Jewish people anymore. But he is saying, no, I still care deeply about my flesh and blood. In fact, I love the Jewish people so much that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them. Paul talks elsewhere about the Christian as someone who is sorrowful but always rejoicing. Those two things going together. And and we learn here that one of the things that Paul is always sorrowful about is the condition of his own people. Anguish uh, to the extent that he says in verse 3, he could wish he would lose his own salvation if that meant they would be saved. Why does he say he he could wish? Well, he knows that it's not a possibility. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from, from the love of Christ. And yet, if it could, Paul could wish that. It is an incredible thing to say. I don't know if I could say that about any group of people. But Paul isn't, even the first leader of God's people to say it. We read earlier from Exodus 32 where Moses doesn't just say it, but he prays it. Moses prays, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Think of the love you would have to have for a group of people to say something like that. And Paul says it because he loves them and because he knows the seriousness of their condition. Paul knows that if his Jewish brothers and sisters continue unrepentant, they will be accursed and cut off from Christ Think of an astronaut doing a spacewalk. They, they go outside the International Space Station to fix something on the outside of it, but, but they're tethered to it. They're tied onto it with a cord so that if they lose their grip, they'll, they'll not just float off into space. But if that cord gets severed, that's it. There's no comeback. There's no rescuing them. They won't die right away, but they're effectively dead. Once their oxygen tank runs out, that's it. And that's what it is to be cut off from Christ. It is to have a semblance of life here on earth for a very brief while, but to have certain death as your destiny. Those around us, those close to us, those who we love deeply, but who don't trust in Jesus, Once that oxygen tank runs out, once they breathe for the last time on this earth, they will enter eternity cut off from Christ unless they repent. The word accursed is literally anathema. Uh, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be 
accursed. Let him be anathema. He uses it in Galatians 1. If, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Why does Paul use that language here? Because that same thing is what will happen to the Jews who don't believe in Jesus and to the Reformed Presbyterians who don't believe in Jesus. They will be anathema, accursed, cut off from Christ under his eternal judgment. And so when Paul says he, he could wish that he was accursed for them, he's offering to take their place. Such is his love for his own people. And such also is his concern for the glory of God. Again, we see this with both Moses and Paul. Moses' big concern, we saw it in the passage read earlier, we, we see it uh, from elsewhere as well, is that the nations around, it's, it's what they would say. They'd say that God had brought his people out with evil intent. They'd say that God wasn't able to bring his people into the promised land. Paul, uh, as we'll see, ha has a, a similar concern that, that the people of God who had been given so many promises would be cast off. In verse 6 he spells out what this would look like to many people. What will it look like if the Jews are not saved? It will look like the word of God has failed. We can be concerned about the this struggles in our churches for all sorts of reasons. But is our deepest concern how it reflects back on God uh, to, to those around us? Is our deepest concern uh, that when people uh, around us look at God's promises in the Bible and then look at the state of the church, that they will say, well, it doesn't look like it. They'll say, the word of God has failed For the Jewish people to be given so much by God and then not to make it to heaven. The, the thought of that is nearly too much for Paul to bear. And he says if possible he would give up his place in heaven for them. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if one man could die and the nation be saved he would do it. He would be that one man. But of course... There's only one man who could do that. And Paul knows this better than us. There's only one man who could be cut off, who could be a curse for the sake of his people. And that's not Paul, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And if any Jews or Protestants or anyone else are going to be saved, they're going to have to trust in him. And so we have a sincere sorrow. The final chapter of Romans tells us that Paul is actually dictating this letter to a man called Tertius. Uh, and can you picture Paul at this point having to pause uh, because of his emotion? Uh, stopping speaking to try and compose himself. Uh, and as Tertius looks up from, from his page to see why Paul has stopped speaking, he sees tears in his eyes. 
And one point of application before we leave this first point is, is are there ever tears in our eyes? Does Christ over sinners weep and will our cheeks be dry? Do you know anything of this type of sorrow for family members, friends, neighbours who aren't Christians? If not, is it because you don't really believe what will happen to them if you don't believe in Jesus? Or has your belief become simply theoretical? I must remind you that there are only two options. To be in Christ, that's how Paul describes himself in verse 1, or to be cut off from Christ, as Paul describes his Jewish brothers. And we'll see in our second point, if all the Jews' privileges and Bible knowledge couldn't save them, how could anyone else think they would be saved apart from Jesus? If anyone was going to be saved by their privileges, by their upbringing, it would have been the Jews. But Paul's saying no. But before we, we go there and look at some of those privileges that they've thrown off, I want to finish this first point with, with a word of reassurance for you. If you do know something of the sorrow that Paul feels here. If you too have anguish over loved ones who are still outside of Christ. Because this is a book that knows where you're coming from. Many of God's people have stood where you stand and have wept over what you weep about. That will necessarily lessen the anguish that you feel. But it does remind you that you're not alone. You're not alone. And it makes the dilemma of these chapters all the more relevant. So firstly, this morning, sincere sorrow. Secondly, squandered privileges. Squandered privileges. Marcus Rashford was in the news recently. Uh, maybe you saw him when he was over. If you don't know who he is, he's a footballer. He plays for Man United and England. Rashford was over in Larne a couple of weeks ago. Uh, maybe ask why he was a Premier League footballer in Larne. Maybe others say, why, why, why not? Um, but he had a friend from uh, Man United Youth Days who just signed for Larne FC. So he went over to see him. That was all fine. Uh, but then he went on a, a drinking spree in Belfast. It was reported in the, in the press. He got back to Manchester late. It was late for training. Uh, left out of the team's next match. And people are concerned about him because it's not the first time. Uh, there have been similar incidents when he's been left out for turning up late or been pictured out partying after a heavy defeat. And people are beginning to worry that he's wasting his talent. He has the potential to be world class, but sometimes he just doesn't look interested. So much potential, but what will he do with it? Will people look back in five years and say, of his career, he wasted it. He didn't live up to his potential. And there's a sense of that on a far, far deeper level here in verses 4 and 5. As Paul lists some of the privileges that the Jews had. They had been given so much. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption. 
Israel as a whole in the Old Testament are described as God's son. Out of Egypt I called my son. The glory belonged to them. Uh, We read in the Old Testament about the glory of the Lord dwelling in Mount Sinai. The the glory of the Lord filling the, the temple and the tabernacle. It was a sign of God's presence with them. It showed that he dwelt among them. They also had the covenant. God's promises to his people in in the days of Abraham, Moses and David that he would be their God and they would be his people. To them belonged the giving of the law. The other nations, because they were God's image bearers as well, they had the remnants of God's law on their hearts. But the Israel God had spoken his law verbally, directly to the people. Uh, Maybe you wonder why is that a privilege? Well, by giving the law to the Jews, it's like uh, God was marking out the white lines to, to show them how far they had fallen from his law, to drive them to the coming Messiah. The Jews also had the the worship or or the service. Uh, The word is used in the book of Hebrews to describe what took place in the temple. And they had the promises. Many of whom, or many of which, most of which had been spoken by Jewish prophets to Jewish people. The Jews had all that. And then the promised Messiah had finally come. And they rejected him. Now I think we struggle from our point in history to feel just how shocking that would have been. That in the words of John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. There are some news stories that send shockwaves around the world. I'm sure there are are various news stories we've heard in our lives and something has come on in the radio, in a shop or or in the car and we'll never forget where we were when we heard that. You can't believe that it's true. Well, this is one of the most shocking news stories in world history. That the Jewish Messiah has come and been rejected by the Jews It shouldn't have been shocking. It had been prophesied. Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's the stone? It's Jesus. Who are the builders? The Jews. So their rejection of their own Messiah, it hadn't just been prophesied. They'd literally been singing about it. But they still did it. And as Jesus himself would say after quoting this psalm, Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So the Jews who have been given so much, by and large, have thrown it all away. Every single thing in that list in verse 4 should have pointed them to Jesus And would only be finally fulfilled in him. They had the adoption. Israel was God's son. But they missed out on being personally adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. 
They'd have the displays of God's glory, uh, the sign that God was with them and dwelt with them. But when Emmanuel, God with us, finally arrives, they reject him. They had the covenants, the promises that God would be their God and they would be his people. But that's only possible through Jesus. The one who would take the curses of the covenant on himself so that we might receive its blessings. They had the law given to them in such a way as to emphasize their inability to keep it and drive them to Jesus. But they tried to make the law into an end in itself. They had the temple worship, which pictured Jesus from beginning to end, but they trusted in the pictures rather than the reality. And they had the promises the, the focus of which was, was the Messiah. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. They, they had all these things but they missed the person they were pointing to. They had all the signposts. Uh, they're like someone who, who goes out and, uh, and sees signposts to places that they want to go. And they, they uproot the signposts and take the signposts and put them in the living room. And yes, they have the signposts, but they're missing out on what the signposts point to. So who are the equivalent of the Jews today? Because this is where this chapter comes home to us. Because surely the equivalent today is those who have Bibles, who sit in churches, who perhaps are Christian parents, but they haven't been born again. Those who have all the privileges and all the advantages and are not saved. So the big takeaway from these verses, it isn't simply about the Jews, whether 2,000 years ago or today. It is absolutely tragic that they had all those advantages and, and cut themselves off from Christ and still do. Like that astronaut uh, deliberately cutting the cord, tying him to the space station. But what we need to realise today is that people are doing the exact same thing every week. Maybe someone here is. You're here each week, you hear the gospel preached. There are people around you whose lives have been transformed by it. But are you still unchanged? Boys and girls, the Jewish people, they had been given so much. That's, that's what we mean by the word privilege. They had been given so much that other people didn't have. And you have so much too compared to other people. You have... Uh, Mums and dads who love Jesus and bring you to church and read the Bible to you. You have Christians your own age. You, you get to meet Christians from different parts of the world. But none of that will do you any good if you don't believe in Jesus for yourself. And why will, will none of that do anyone any good if they don't believe in Jesus because, verse 5, Christ is God over all. In one sense, the Jews' greatest privilege was that Jesus was descended from them according to the flesh. 
These verses teach a Messiah who is fully human, who has a, a human descent that can be traced, but who is also God, the Christ who is God over all. It really is amazing that there are people who'll say that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. Well, here it is. Here's the Bible's answer. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? He is God over all, blessed forever. This is the one we worship today. This is the one who will be with you in the week ahead. And the Jews had all the privileges, but they had rejected the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And the person today who trusts in their church involvement or their good works to get to heaven does the same thing. By trusting in those things, they're rejecting the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And if you reject the one who is blessed forever, the only outcome will be to be cursed forever. To be forever cursed is the only possible outcome for rejecting the one who is blessed forever. If you reject the one who was cursed in the place of sinners, you will bear that curse instead. If I go out onto the street and throw an egg at a random passerby, I'll, I'll probably get in trouble. If I throw an egg at King Charles, I'll get in a lot more trouble. The more important the person is, the worse it is to reject them. The worse that it is to throw their offer of help back in their face. And the uniqueness of Jesus makes rejecting him all the more serious. The most serious thing in the universe. And you can reject Jesus by living a bad life, a wild life. But you can also reject Jesus by living a religious life. That's what Paul himself had once done. That's what many of the Jews of his day were doing. And that's what some people found in churches today are still doing. But I know that for many here today that that is not the case. And if Jesus does mean everything to you today, then no matter how much you are struggling, no matter how much you feel the pressure, one day your faith in him will be vindicated. Why? Because one day he will be seen by all to be who he has always been. God over all, blessed forever. Amen and amen. O oh Lord our God, what blessing we have. Uh, what privileges uh, uh, and yet what blessing many have had who have sung this psalm down through the centuries. Uh, people singing these words and then fulfilling these words by rejecting their own Messiah. Uh, we, we pray that you would give us a, a great vision today of the Lord Jesus as the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. 
uh, that we would uh, not uh, see in any sense that the gospel is is simply uh, okay for uh, for one or, or good for one group of people, but that it is something that people take or leave because they are they are not taking or leaving our message. They are not rejecting us, but they are rejecting uh, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And as we have thought today of Paul's sorrow and Paul's tears and Jesus' tears over sinners, uh, surely some of your people here have, have tears for loved ones who, who have had great privileges but today are walking uh, away from Christ. Uh, and yet you are a God who is patient, you are a God who is long-suffering. And how we pray that the Good Shepherd would come and seek this and save the lost, that he would bring into their lives whatever circumstances are needed uh, to bring them back to him so that they would not end their lives uh, cut off from Christ, uh, but that instead that they would turn to him and that he would gladly take on himself the curse for their sins, that they would be blessed forever with him, we ask in Jesus' name. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.